He's not a pirate. Hello, and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode four, Pope Linus. Oh, yeah, that's going to be all new territory for me. I have never heard of Pope Linus. I wouldn't have expected you to have heard of Pope Linus, though, for real, because who knows Pope number two? Yeah, dude, who cares? Well, we care. Yes. That's who cares. Now now we suddenly care. We do. We do. And and he is, Pope Linus is Pope number two. Not Charlie Brown's best friend. Not Charlie Brown's best friend. Just Pope number two. Or at least we think he's Pope number two, because if you look at it, the first ten or so popes are pretty heavily contested in the numbering. So we are relying solely on the annuario pontifico. But for the record, the sources that cite Linus as the second pope include Julius Africanus, St. Irenaeus, St. Hippolytus, Eusebius, Jerome, the Liberian Catalog, and Pope Eleutherius himself. But I think the only source that really matters is we are now saying that Pope Linus was pope too, and that's the citation that matters. Yep, we're the most important. Don't forget. Why do you think it's so confusing? That they don't really know the papal order, if you will. Do you have any ideas on that? Well, our first pope, Peter, he's all biblical myth and nebulous facts. Um, And then I assume everything else is just like dated letters and historical documents that are all jumbled up. Yep, there's that. But there's also this whole thing that happens where... Modern scholarship has now said that Rome likely didn't have a single ruling bishop, or at least the concept wasn't down as an official policy at the time. And since Rome is still emerging as the head of the church, it means it's entirely possible that our next three popes, Linus, Anacletus, and Clement, kind of overlapped a bit in their time as Bishop of Rome, or... Oh, okay. They could have all just been bishops at the same time. Just in different areas. This makes a lot of sense. Hoes in different area codes, as it were. Popes in different area codes? Yes. Well, this is exactly what it is, because this is a survival tactic for the church, if you think about it. This is a time of heavy persecution and martyrdom, as we see with Peter. It's entirely possible that the church doesn't want to put all of its eggs in one basket, or in one bishop, if you will. There may have been many bishops at the same time, and who held the most authority could have shifted, basically to accommodate this idea of apostolic succession that we've been talking about. Let's jump into Linus here, because we actually know a little bit about him, surprisingly. He was born in Volterra, Tuscany, in around 10 AD. He's from Italy, then. His father was called Herculanus, and his mother was called Claudia. And he was also likely some sort of noble rank, because it said that after hearing Peter preach, he converted to the faith and renounced his nobility and wealth to serve Christ. So in order to renounce some wealth, you have to have some wealth. So he was probably one of the noble families in Volterra. So Linus joins the church, and he's either consecrated by Peter or by Paul. 
and he's consecrated at the same time as Anacletus. And he begins to preach, and he's traveling to administer sacraments to the community, and he is remembered in the sources for his zeal, learning, and prudence. He was devoted to prayer, and his preaching was considered memorable and powerful, drawing converts wherever he went. Well, that's good. That's a good guy to have. It sounds like good Pope material. Yeah, good guy in your corner here. He's doing all the right things. He doesn't really seem to be a douche like Peter. He's doing a good job. And he's converting people wherever he goes. But there is one exception. While he's traveling to preach the gospel, Linus ends up in Gaul, specifically in the city of Basancon. And he's in the city during a festival for a patron god of the city. And so he gets up there, he rocks up into the city, and he begins to preach to all the people who are gathered to celebrate this city god. And he starts warning them against idolatry. Oh, this is like a bad situational comedy. So he starts sermonizing that the idols representing their gods are, in fact, nothing but statues and have no breath or sentiment or any holy power, and that these idols are only representing their own human weaknesses and their own vices. Oh, Linus. Oh, Linus. So he calls on them to convert to the one and true God, to renounce their idol worship, and to convert with him. Did that go over well? I don't think so. He crashes their party. He crashes their god-worshipping party to tell them that everything they're doing is wrong. You can imagine that, yeah, this is rubbing the citizens the wrong way already. But then, according to the story, as soon as he finishes speaking, a column on the temple that they are all in front of breaks. It crumbles down, it knocks over one of the idols that is being worshipped, and smashes it to pieces. The people in the city are now furious, and rather than converting to Christianity with Linus, they decide to drive him right out of the city. Well, I would too if uh, if a man is possibly breaking breaking our buildings with his uh <laughs> with his preaching. Yeah. How dare. And the greatest part about this is that Basankan won't actually convert to Christianity for almost 200 years after this moment. Because they're so spiteful. They're so mad. And it takes two other prominent Catholic martyrs from the city, St. Ferolius and St. Ferruccio, to actually evangelize and convert Basancon into a Christian city. Although, cheekily, if you go to the Basancon websites, they still credit Linus as being their first bishop. Which I think is cheeky as hell. He's the first one we, uh, drove out of town. Yeah, we can uh we can cite back to having a relationship with the second ever pope. Absolutely. Linus is driven out of the city, and sometime later, we don't know how long later really, Linus returns to Rome. He'd made converts everywhere else, so you know, he's probably not showing up with his tail tucked between his legs. He's probably receiving a pretty warm welcome. We really only have an idea about the timing based on the fact that we know he was with Paul near the end of Paul's life, according to Timothy's second epistle. 
And since most people believe that both Peter and Paul were martyred at the same time, this is somewhere between 64 and 68 AD. And at this point, at some point in this time of Linus being back, Peter must have appointed Linus to be his successor, because after Peter's death, Linus takes up the mantle of Bishop of Rome, and so starts his papacy. What did Linus do with his papacy, you might wonder? Yes, yes. We know a little bit about what he did, and we know what he probably definitely did not. The thing that he probably did is we know that he supposedly wrote accounts of the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, but these have been lost to history. We don't have these anymore. Oh. He created 15 bishops for the expanding church in Rome and ordained 18 new priests to minister and preach much as he had been out doing. And he was also the first to implement a celebration of Mass for Jesus' Passion, which is for non-Christian listeners the whole process in which leads up to the crucifixion. Then he may have written a decree that all women must cover their heads or wear a veil while in church. That's, yeah, okay. That lasted quite some time, too. Yeah, and this is super controversial, too, because all the ancient sources attribute this decree to Linus. But current historians see no evidence for this whatsoever. The Liber Pontificalis suggests that the decree had come from a letter of instruction and encouragement from Linus, which directed women to keep their heads covered in, quote, conformity with the ordinance of St. Peter. Gonna be distracted by those heads. If there was such an original document by Linus, any letter of encouragement and instruction, it's definitely been lost. But what we do have, however, is Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which is said to contain potential quotes from Linus's original letter. Not sure exactly how that works, but this is what they're saying. Because to me, this is just as easily or more likely to have just come from Paul in the first place, since we know that Paul has pretty strong feelings of misogyny. Yeah, he does. He does not like the ladies. Yeah, he doesn't. So this is what we have from Paul's letter. That is 1 Corinthians 11, three, line 3 through 10. I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the husband is the head of his wife, and God the head of Christ. Any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered brings shame upon his head. But any woman who prays or prophecies with her head unveiled brings shame upon her head, for it is one and the same thing as if she had her head shaved. For if a woman does not have her head veiled, she may as well have cut her hair off. But if it is shameful for a woman to have cut her hair off or her head shaved, then she should wear a veil. A man, on the other hand, should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for woman, but woman for man. And for this reason should have a sign of authority on her head because of the angels. Because of the angels. End quote. So what I'm hearing is that Paul is okay with men getting heat stroke. What I'm hearing is that... Paul thought that women's hair being exposed would lead to boning, and he was not on board with that. That distracting hair. 
Or maybe it's like the scalp. Don't don't shave your head. Pretend you have hair by putting a piece of cloth on your head. Maybe he was just really afraid of bald women. Yeah, he went to Lesbos that one time. Maybe there were a lot of bald lesbians. But let's let's just unpack this whole women covering their head proclamation for a minute because this would have been a very strange thing to have written at the time, considering that Christians were still facing pretty serious persecution and likely would have had much bigger concerns than women's heads or hair. Someone who has been known up until this point for having a zeal of faith probably would have been more concerned with providing guidance for the scared who are facing persecution rather than women need to cover their hair. Rather than their heads. Yeah. I mean, he wants them to keep their heads, but he doesn't care what's on their heads. We, sh we should hope so. So, more than likely, this doesn't come from Linus, although it is still definitely ascribed to his name. And so we must incorporate it and then potentially judge him on it. We will decide. Beyond shaming ladies for praying without a head covering, Linus is also known for a handful of miracles. Oh, he does miracles too? He does some miracles. Are they cool ones? Tell me. Well, okay, so like Peter, he is known for raising a dead person back to life. Okay, that seems to be a thing that happens a lot. Yeah. I wonder if these people were ever dead. But what Linus is better known for is his ability to cast out devils from possessed people. And this is ironic, because it would be his exorcisms that would lead to his death. The story goes that Linus expels a demon from a possessed girl, who was the daughter of Saturninus, a former consul of Rome. After the successful exorcism, Saturninus's daughter converts to Christianity, like you do after someone's ripped a devil out of you. Uh, I mean, that seems logical, though- It seems very logical. Her dad has the most Roman name to ever be Roman. It's very Romanized. And her father is also extremely Romanized, so when his daughter converts to Christianity after being saved from a demonic possession, he's absolutely infuriated. He's livid. So he has Linus arrested- imprisoned and beheaded for saving his daughter from demons and turning her into a Christian. That is intense. Wow. Yeah, he's not on board. That is a reaction. <laughs> and you've got to wonder how Linus even gets to this daughter, because more than likely he was contracted to come and help, or asked to help, and brought in to save this young girl, and now he is mostly dead. Yeah, and then and then he's like Saturn Saturnella, what's his name? Saturninus. Yeah. <laughs> I got part way there. I mean, maybe he was just like, ah, I guess we'll see what these new age Catholics are gonna do. Maybe they can help with their wibbly woo. What? You mean you've turned my daughter into a Christian with your wibbly woo? Death. Man, he must have had a lot of pull. He was a former Roman consul. That's about as much pull as you could have. That is intense. Mm-hmm. This is the generally accepted story of Linus's death, but sources still debate whether or not this makes him a martyr. That's a good question. 
Because you're technically, are you technically dying for the faith or are you dying because you pissed off a consul? It's, it's hard to say. The Roman martyrology does not include Linus in its summary of martyrs, but today his name is given in the Roman canon of mass, which includes all the canonized martyrs. And we actually have a date of his death, which is September 23rd, 76. And like Peter, he gets buried on Vatican Hill. Now, in 1615, a tomb is found in St. Peter's Basilica bearing the name Linus. Well, in Roman spelling, it's L-I-N-V-S, but that is Linus. But this may or may not be the tomb of Pope Linus, because it's just as likely to have been a portion of an inscription that listed a longer Roman name, like Aquilinus or Anulinus. Nobody knows for sure, but some people accept that that is his grave. That's fair. So, in very brief summary, that is the life and times of Pope Linus. Pope number two. Well, I mean, the first part was pretty interesting, and then the last, the end of it there just kind of, it got real misogynistic, and then it petered off, kind of fizzled out there. Surprise, you're dead. I think he, he's bookended with two very interesting stories, and they all are kind of like terrible backlash for being a Christian. So, I guess we'll have to see how he does when we rate him. Yeah. Papatum infallium. Linus's overall success of the papacy. He is responsible for the institution of mass for Christ's passion. That is still something that is done today. That's a pretty big deal. He's responsible for the ordination of 18 priests and 15 bishops to grow the church. That's a lot. Pretty good. And he may have decreed that ladies should cover their heads. I think at this point we need to decide whether or not we're going to ascribe this to him. Are we going to hold him responsible? No, I can't. I can't. That's It's gotta be Paul. It's very Paul-like. It definitely seems like Paul. So we won't give him credit or lack of credit for that. Um, and then he's also, we have to consider on the negative side that He's going around and preaching and making a lot of converts, but then he gets to a city that literally drives him out of it. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to hear it. Yeah. So what do you think you want to give him out of ten for the success of his papacy? Well, if we're just going with the, the papacy, his uh, converting walk was before that. Mm-hmm. So I will give him a seven. A seven? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that Linus, poor overlooked Linus, I think that if you look at him as somebody who who seems to be the perfect candidate to be Pope after Peter, I want to give him a good score. But he hasn't done a whole lot at the same time. We've got some new priests, we've got some new bishops, we have the institution of the Mass, but it's all very perfunctory. So I think I'm going to give him like a four. All right. So that will give Linus a score of 11 out of 20 for Papatum and Phallium. Fructus prohibitum? Linus's bad behavior. We really have nothing. The scandal category is eventually going to take off, but uh, 
Not with these early popes. I mean, unless his death story is technically a scandal. It wouldn't have been at the time because the Christians are still, you know, culty agitators that are just kind of annoying people and uh, he's being executed by a former consul. So that's kind of run of the mill. It's just Tuesday. Mm-hmm. That's fair. So if he's he's got really nothing else, so... Yeah. I think he's got to get a zero. Yeah, can you can you give him a zero? Or is this like... You can give him a zero. Is this like Yelp, where you have to put at least one star? Oh no, we will definitely be giving zeros. There will be popes who will deserve zeros in a lot of these categories, so zero it is. Seculari impactum. Effect on the everyday people, not just the church members. Well, he's going around and converting people, he's being cast out of cities, and he's also going around and exercising people who aren't even of the Christian faith. He's having an impact. Is it a good impact? Mmm, questionable. He's pulling devils out of people, according to the sources. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's real important. Why are there so many devils in Rome? What's happening, Rome? Yeah, and I'm thinking if I am, you know, standard pagan Roman citizen, and I get possessed by demons, I'm probably gonna want to call on Pope Linus and not cut his head off for it. I gotta give him something for that. Alright, so what are you gonna give him? Think I am going to give him a two for that. Just for his exorcisms. Because I love exorcisms and we're gonna be talking about that in detail in this series. It's a, just a fascinating topic, so he's gotta get at least two for that. I was gonna give him maybe a three. I was gonna be a little generous, cause he's been, he's been at least pulling people over to the cause, even if he has been pissing some people off at the same time. He sure has. So that gives him a five for Secularis Impactum, which is just one point less than Peter got. Well, not a lot to impact here. I mean, there's more world to impact than church to impact at this point, and they're not doing a real big world job. Not quite yet, but we will get there in time. Fossium Sanctus. This is where we decide how hot he is. Uh, we do not have any contemporary or literary depictions of Linus, but he has a fairly distinct appearance in church art, so I am going to show you the photo, and you are going to describe him for our listeners. I have two photos. They're fairly similar enough, so I'm going to send them both to you. Let's see this man. This is the man. They're doing that curly cue thing again. The little cloud puff in the middle of their forehead will be around for a while, so... That's fair. It reminds me of when uh, someone draws, like, a rabbit or something that clearly doesn't have, like, hair and then gives them that big, huge front puff. So describe him for our listeners. All right. Beyond the front puff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. He looks like... Well, he looks like Joe Schmo Roman Man <laughs> is what he looks like. There is nothing incredible about this guy. He he has the nose that you would expect. He has the cheek structure, structure that you would expect. He has the eyes. There's literally nothing remarkable about this man. He's got some lips, though. <laughs> yes, he does. They're pretty full and luscious. He's got some luscious lips. Yes, he does. I'm just saying, if you had to pick this man out 
of like a crime lineup, it wouldn't happen. You would have forgotten him immediately. Luscious lips or not. Linus of the luscious lips, you would forget Linus of the <laughs> What do you think about his handlebar mustache in this one picture that has clearly maintained into his handlebar mustache beard? It's a look, it's a choice. I think he's trying to hide part of his luscious lips, but they're just, it's not happening. Why? Why, Linus? Why are you trying to hide your one distinguishing feature? Everything else about him. What would you like to give him as a score out of 10? I have to give him like a one. Okay, I'm going to give him a one as well just for his luscious lips, which gives him a score of 0.5. Not a good looking man. Just kind of a regular looking man. <laughs> just just a dude. A dude on the street. Tempus Pontificus. Because of the confusion around the order of popes, many of the dates for the first couple popes are just jumbled together. So we're going to take what is considered the best guess for Linus, which puts his reign at 67 to 76. That's a total of nine years and gives us a score of 2.25 for Tempus Pontificus. Well, it's not a very long reign. No. After Peter. It, it's short. Peter is the longest that we are going to see. Okay. And these generally tend to be old folks. So nine years isn't bad. So once we like drop below like a year, then a guy can complain about it being short. Oh, yeah. there And there will be some. <laughs> Just you wait. <laughs> All right, everybody. It's the canon bonus round. Do, 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 do. So, yes, Linus is a saint. He has a feast day on the 23rd of September. And he's not actually a patron saint of anything other than St. Linus School in Oak Lawn, Illinois. I went looking for it to see if they had Peter and Paul, like, together on something, also in Illinois. Also, quite nearby. I don't know what's wrong with Illinois and their choices of saints to tack onto their churches, but they got something going on. Well, that's the, it's the only place that Linus is getting recognized. However, I did read one cheeky article that suggests he should be the patron saint of Vale and Hatmakers. Oh, rude. Really, really fantastic, and should definitely be true. So, normally I'm going to let you decide what they should be the patron saint of, but I feel like, in this case, we should give him that one. And we're not going to go with, like, chapstick? You know, that's even better. <laughs> he could be, he's going to be the patron saint of chapstick. Also, I found an online retail store that's actually called St. Linus Veils and Bost Apparel. So, that's a thing. This gives Linus a total score of 19.75. Oh, that's much lower than Peter's 50-something. That is significantly lower than Peter's 51.5. But at this point, it only puts him in second place. So, not too bad. <laughs> Pope number two. He's not on the bubble yet. This leads us to our final question where we ask, does he have that interesting, extra, popey pizzazz that makes him worthy of a papal bull? Yeah, my gut says no. Yeah, I don't think... I don't think we can give it to him. As unfortunate as it is, Linus of the Luscious Lips 
you are not going to receive a papal bull. It is straight to purgatory. Do not forget your chapstick. I'm sure he hasn't. But that's it for for Linus. But this is not it for our episode because we have a special segment that we're going to introduce here. Pope Watch. So in this special segment, Pope Watch, since it is going to take us forever to get to Pope Francis, and who knows if he will be Pope when we get to him, and because he's doing so much in the world, every now and then we are going to dedicate a little time to look at what's happening in the world of Frank. What's going on with our buddy over there? So in our first segment of What's Going On with Frank, we need to discuss something that happened yesterday. Yesterday, May 6th, was the annual swearing-in of the Swiss Guards. The Swiss Guards, if you don't know, is the world's smallest but oldest standing army, which exists solely to protect the Pope. They are basically the papal bodyguards. They do not serve as Vatican City Security or Vatican City Police Force. They are purely to protect the Pope. The tradition of having the annual ceremony on May the 6th is founded based on the Sack of Rome that happened on May 6th in 1527, because during this invasion, which we are going to cover in detail when we get there, 147 Swiss guards were killed while defending Clement VII from the attackers. That's crazy. It allowed the Pope to escape from the Vatican to Castel San Angelo through a secret passageway and evade capture. So the annual swearing-in of the Swiss Guard takes place in the historic St. Damaso Courtyard in Vatican City in the presence of religious leaders and the Pope and representatives from the Swiss Confederation. All guards are present in full-dress uniform. It opens with a little song by the Swiss Guard drummers. And the chaplain of the order then reads the solemn oath of the Swiss Guard, which is as follows. I swear that I will faithfully, loyally, and honorably serve the Supreme Pontiff Francis and his legitimate successors, and also dedicate myself to them with all my strength, sacrificing, if necessary, also my life to defend them. I assume the same commitment with regard to the sacred college of cardinals whenever the see is vacant. Furthermore, I promise to the commanding captain and my other superiors respect, fidelity, and obedience. This I swear, may God and our holy patrons assist me. That's some, that's some intense stuff. That is... It's a good oath. Do they do this every year? Every year on May the 6th. Is it only the new ones, or is it all everybody? It is only the new ones, but the all the existing ones are also present to welcome their new guards. So, new recruits are then brought up after the oath, and they take their guards standard in their left hand, right hand opened in the symbol of the Holy Trinity, and they confirm their own oath with I, insert their name here, Swear I will observe faithfully, loyally, and honorably all that has now been read out to me. May God and his saints assist me. How many got were sworn in yesterday? Well, this is the part that I just love. 
33 new Swiss guards were sworn in yesterday as part of the process to upgrade the number of Swiss guards from its current 110 to about 135 is their goal, which they say is a response to Pope Francis's spontaneity and informality. He keeps walking off places. He keeps walking off and sneaking out of the Vatican, and so they are literally saying, we need more guards because this is a thing. We can't keep the Pope safe if he keeps leaving. He's literally evading the Swiss Guard, and so they need more men. And that is our first segment of Pope Watch. That leaves us with some thank yous to make, and uh, this week there are a lot. We have had an incredible amount of support. So thank you as always to Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for the blessing, the support, the encouragement, shouting out on us on their latest show. Uh, Totalis Rankium talked all about us on their Justinian episode, which is awesome. Thank you guys. And of course, Rob designed our logos. Saga Thing's been tweeting about us and shouting out, so that's awesome. When Diplomacy Fails, you guys have been shouting out about us too. That's awesome. Thank you very much. We need to thank the History of Ancient Greece. They've been shouting out about us. Thank you very much, Ryan. That was awesome. The Morbid History Podcast shouted out about us on one of their latest episodes on their episode about Mount Everest because we'd been in contact. And uh, yeah, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Pontifax Pod. We're also on most major podcatching platforms. You can also email us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you and goodbye. Mm-hmm.